So I'll look at some questions. Just a little bit more light, please. Yeah, thank you. This one um, regarding dependent origination. I see how nama rupa is dependent on consciousness as it needs a backdrop to play itself out. I'm baffled by consciousness if it can if it can find no footing. How can it dependent on anything? It's called the conjurer creating self another. Is consciousness dependent on life and is it something we tap into for a lifetime? I'm also curious about the relationship between citta and vijnana. That's all for now. Well, that's plenty. That's probably... (laughs) (laughs) Right. So let's just look at those terms. Nama. Nama literally means name, though it can sometimes... People translate it as mind, name. The word literally means name or naming. Rupa, shape. Shape, form, often translated as body or materiality. So... Is it interesting? You know those two quite small words. It literally, literally means name, shape, um, <coughs> or form, name and form. Um, so I've kind of glossed this as subject and object. Rupa is the object of which. Yeah. So we have consciousness. The the what's said to be the um, the tripod, like that, that all come together, so it's likened to a sheaf of reeds where they all depend upon each other. Consciousness, name, form. Consciousness, name, form. They all are said to mutually arise. Mm. So in this, so because something mutually arises, whenever one talks about one thing. Um, Really, it's dependent upon the others. So we start with something like rupa, form, shape, object, that which is the object of consciousness. So, visual object, rupa, uh, arises because there's a consciousness that can see, seeing consciousness. So, you can't have the experience of rupa without a consciousness to detect it. Now, all, all this, you've got to really recognize and get clear that we're talking about experience as we're actually experiencing it, not something we can stand outside of. We cannot stand outside experience. And look at it. We're in it. So the experience of a visual form depends upon a, an eye organ that can see it. The eye organ depends upon having a, an eyeball so it depends upon form here as matter and form out there as something that can be seen. Form, therefore, form depends upon consciousness to see the form, otherwise it won't happen. Consciousness itself depends upon a form, otherwise it can't see anything. You can't see something that's not visible. So has to be a visible object. So clearly consciousness and form 
kind of co-arise, you know. So we say, then you have different kinds of consciousness, and naturally, consciousness of a fly would probably see things rather differently. But human consciousness sees visual objects according to a certain range of colours. If you're if you're not colour blind, you know, doesn't see certain level other uh, X rays or, or or infrared doesn't see that. So we're saying therefore. You know, particular kind of consciousness, human consciousness detects a certain range of light frequency. Okay, so it's quite relative. Now, in the detecting of that, the visual consciousness uh, depends upon other, th- or is arises with certain other qualities. It, first of all, in order to be that. That has to be. There has to be uh, contact. Has to, you know, get it. If it's dark, you can't see it. So there has to be contact. Um, um, intention to see. Look around. Uh, uh, attention, focus. Uh, and then, in that process, of the visual field, mm, which the eye can see. What happens is attention selects something within that to form a focus on. Therefore, Rupa starts to change from being a wide field into being small things within with a background, small things with a background. Now that process of differentiation is called Nama, whereby first thing that occurs maybe is attention selects an object out of really a wide field so that's a particular subjective thing and if I'm interested in cushions right or wedding bands or pens or you know it will go there so certainly intention is a factor yeah what one is interested in causes that particular object to become strongly available and around that, certain perceptions, that's nice, or I like the look of that, or it reminds me of something, qualities of feeling arise. So this nama is attention, intention, contact, feeling, perception. All that's occurring within consciousness. Without consciousness, those things cannot occur. If those things don't occur, then the consciousness sort of doesn't do its job, really. So it can't can't synthesize a mental response. So what consciousness is, is a dynamic that's, in order for there to be a known object, has to be a mental synthesis with the visual thing. Right, and that's the Nama bit. Clearly the eye just sees this, it doesn't have any particular preference. The mind selects specific rupa out of a rather undifferentiated field. So that's that's the process going on, and in that naturally the <coughs> the real uh, gist of it is that in this nama there are many kinds of bias of intentionality, uh, fascination, aversion, 
agreeable, disagreeable, what things reminds me of, what frightens me, what I find suspicious, delightful, enjoyable, all that bubbling away. Mm. And so this Nama thing, aspect, cannot occur without there being consciousness and form. Mm. So Nama, really dependent upon consciousness and form. For form to exist, to be experienced, it's generally has to be some kind of naming of it before you really get it. So, for example, our ears can be open, we're not deaf, but we're not listening, therefore we don't hear, you know, uh, subtle sounds, sounds of a certain volume, you can't, hear, you can't help but hear them. But you can have an experience like living next to a river for a lifetime or for years, you don't hear the sound of the river anymore because you're not interested. You're, so even if it's there, and you go, oh yeah, I say, yeah, yeah. Or you're leaving the road, you don't hear the traffic. Oh, you know, it's just mm-hmm. so. So for there to that to be an impingement, there's got to be a turning of attention. The nama factor has to be there in order to provide specific objects for conscious for to get activated by. Now these six consciousnesses then. The five, the five external consciousnesses definitely depend upon, you know, these external or seemingly external uh, phenomena. And so there they are. The really interesting bit is the mind consciousness. Okay, so what's the, what's the organ of the mind? Uh, eyeball, no. Head, brain, heart, nervous system, gut. It, it doesn't really have a such a basis, does it? You, know, you can exp- you can pay, be, have effects which are not thoughts. You can feel disoriented. You can feel frightened. You get bodily effects. So sometimes minds, as I'm saying, is embodied. Yeah, when I mean, we feel fear, the whole body feels it. Right? So where is the mind? What's the basis of it? Yeah. Uh, and by and large, you know, one would say, well, it's probably the entire sentient body is the basis of the mind. And some of it's brain, some of it's heart, some of it's gut, some of it's nervous system. All that contributes to this experience called mind. Mm. So, you know, that's a sort of, now, what does mind experience? Are there really things called fears walking out round there that we experience? Are there such things as pleasures? Are there such things we say, yes, there's lots of pleasures and pains. Where are they? Yeah. Are they out there? Are they in here? Where are they? Uh, where are thoughts? Lots of things called thoughts. Where are they? They're my mind. Where? And so here we begin to recognize they're being generated by the mind. Whereas visual objects are not generated by the eye on one level, in some respect they are, but the mind 
doesn't actually have a pre-existing object. And yet, it's the dominant object. It's the, it's the dominant creator of objects. Right? But it doesn't have any. But it, it's the dominant creator of objects. It creates fears and projects. It creates delights and anticipations. It creates enemies and friends. It creates truths and laws. It creates principles and ideals. It creates miseries and victims and creates past and present and future and self and other. It's a very profound creator of objects. But they're not there. (laughs) They're being generated by the mind. And and it it really depends upon all that. Without that, it's always depending upon some kind of of an object. But what is it that keeps that process going of the mind generating objects that it then gets agitated by? Oh, ignorance, in principle, is the, um, sounds a bit tough, doesn't it? But <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, they're gen- they're not seeing, you could say, and uh, way back, but essentially that, that sense of an seeking orientation around generated objects. You could say, you know, now the fact that the mind can generate objects is can be very handy. You know, but the problem is those objects don't get handy; they become obsessive and oppress one. It starts off as being quite fun, could be you know thinking something, but then the thing turns over and and becomes dominant and obsesses one. So this process of the generation of objects through the mind consciousness becomes extremely um, potent and a lot of, lot of stress in it. Mm. Yeah. So the dependency is based upon you know, that what's happening in Nama that's constantly designating, you know, just as it designates, see something and calls it an apple, see something and calls it a hat, see, hear something and calls it a dog, you know, taste something and calls it a peach, you know, names it. It gets so, and feels somehow made more definite and secure and knowing through that, you know, orients around that capacity feels disoriented if it can't do it it can't come up with those names feels don't know what's going on feels disoriented so it kind of becomes a strong habit so that it, that habit that tendency keeps generating more and more designations even when they're acutely miserable because it seeks that that process gets out of hand that's the ignorant bit of it yeah. It just take, takes over till one's generating fears and anxieties, uh, grudges and grievances, 
self, a trapped self, uh, is a gen- is a generated thing, yeah, uh, a stuck self, is something that's being generated. How miserable it can be. Mm. Generating, yeah, all that stuff. So it gets stuck. And so the, the teaching is well, it's consciousness, mental consciousness. Um, <coughs> is creating its own dependencies to keep itself going, to keep itself activating. So what's called the consciousness that the questioner refers to as can find no footing. Mm. This is the result of uh, contemplative insight practice they recognizing well certain things become gradually become into pl- to play one is when it increasingly does not seek objects to 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 in order to to orient one goes into presence one orients around that yeah or at least decides that one's only going to orient around skillful objects like rather than rather just like truth virtue Friendly, friendliness, you know, well, I can order around that. And then that, that becomes my, 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 moral, my moral compass. And then eventually, it can be the case, my contemplative compass is just presence. And there's all this, but I'm staying in that. Hmm? I think some things are pleasant, some things are unpleasant, some things are known, some things are confusing, some things, they just stay present. Hmm? And the more that strength builds up, um, they begin to acknowledge all those phenomena which are so impressive and so uh, delightful and so appalling are the nature to rise and pass, to move through, shift and change, and one remains present. With some experience of that, this increasing sense of dispassion towards those generated objects and an increasing sense of confidence and trust in the uncreated phenomenon of presence. If you can call it phenomenon, the uncreated, unconditioned. One grows increasingly more confident. This is the mooring post, this other stuff. And through that, the consciousness, the mind consciousness begins to lose its appetite generate doesn't need that stuff to orient around isn't finding satisfaction in that it's finding more satisfaction in staying present is finding a better orientation just through presence through chitta through clear chitta through pure knowing designation start to fall away passion starts to diminish agitation starts to calm down ah mind stops generating so many objects generates fewer and fewer objects and uh, then stops generating <laughs> objects. <laughs> this is called niroda, <laughs> and therefore, and then the consciousness has no takes no footing on those objects. Doesn't keep springboarding from a thought to a sound to an emotion to an interpretation or criticism to a judgment to an assessment to the next thing and what next and how should I and what am I going to do about that? Doesn't keep doing this bouncing because it's lost interest in all those 
footholds. It doesn't need a foothold. It's got, it's established already in <laughs> uh, uh, something trackless, Nibbana. So that's the consciousness um, which doesn't, dip, it takes, finds no footing. Mostly consciousness does find a footing and that's practice. You want to make sure the footing is worthwhile. And, uh, uh, you yeah. know, Consciousness is dependent upon life force, yeah. Remember, it's not an entity. It's like a dynamic flowing uh, uh, stream activity, a knowing activity, an an activated knowing, you could say. So the, you know, the consciousness of Nibbana is, of course, pretty difficult to, to get words around. But you could one say it's called stopped consciousness, or consciousness is not activated. It doesn't come, it doesn't go. It, it doesn't incline, it doesn't resist, it's stopped. And so the un, the non-Nibbanic consciousness is, is, is running on. It's always activated. Curious about the relationship between citta and vijnana. <coughs> chitta mm. yeah well chitta is is, is, the, is sometimes these terms are glossed or the uh, chitta and mano vijnana mind consciousness and chitta mano is the measuring stick the measuring mind the rationality the intellect mm. The, the thing that holds attention, uh, that particular organizer that, 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 that puts things in boxes and moves them around, that's Mano. So the, the Mano Vijnana uh, uh, and, and, uh, is the consciousness that that's operating through. And these three terms, Mano Vijnana and Jitta, you know, they kind of sort of not quite the same, but there's an overlap in them. And uh, but probably most be most specific, citta is really can be described in that terms as mano vijnana datu. Datu means the property, the element. So it's the the very propensity to be able to experience immaterial things, citta. So uh, we can say it's the effective sense, the sense of something which we see as a visual object causes something here to resonate with it, to interpret it. It touches citta. It touches, when we say me, we really mean citta. Uh, when we say, I speak, it really means there's an arising from citta. <laughs> so citta is the subject, you could say, a subject that sits behind these words, me, I. 
Uh, when it, so the, the, the activated citta. So when it's moving into response, it becomes I. When it's experiencing being affected, it goes me. <laughs> who, who, you know, directly the, the me is just the reference, isn't it? And the I is just the reference. There's no real entity there. Yeah. That's citta is that, that subject that cannot be seen as an object. The relationship between that and vijnana is jitta has this tremendous uh, uh, energy and um, you know, energy and uh, potency. Uh, you know, it's something that that can obviously create volition streams from it. So it's got plenty of push. Uh, it can tremble, and so it's got it's plenty dynamic thing, pretty dynamic quality when it's activated and it uses consciousness mind consciousness as a channel to throw its activities down yeah so it says impulse and then there comes a thought impulse and then comes a thought the inclination to think there comes a thought with a bit of emotional behind it. So it uses the mind consciousness to transmit um, its signals of impulse. It also receives from mind consciousness the synthesis of what's been experienced. So if chitta doesn't experience sight or sound, it experiences the mental impression of it. Right? So the mind consciousness acts as the channel to chitta, right? which cannot be seen. Now, this is the activated chitta is doing this. And in similarly as in the previous instance, when we begin to recognize consciousness is activated, all this stuff's happening, it's activated by chitta. Now, is, is really the activator of it. So when there's clarity and coolness and ease in citta, it doesn't activate. Now you can, s- sounds kind of dead, but just recognize, for a st- first of all, that's rather, can be rather agreeable, just because mostly the citta is so activated, not often activated in trapped, obsessive, habitual ways. It's not pure presence, it's presence plus huge amounts of fantasy and accumulated karma. Mm. It's just, all its actions are just going down these trapped, obsessive um, pathways and pumping out phenomena to, to um, justify or to affirm it. You know, it pumps out from its agitation, it pumps out agitated thoughts to, to, to convince itself that it's real. You know, so you've got, oh look, it proves them because they're there, something to get worried about because the worry thing produces a worried thought. Mm. So really, kind of, so as meditation, we start to own that. Okay, you know, uh, where does the worry come from? This, this tremble in the heart. 
We don't take issues. There's a way, yeah, certainly there's plenty to worry about. But right now, just saying, where does it come from? It comes from this tremble here. Yeah, and if that, if we just into steady that, relax, then it could be that it doesn't need to produce a thought that it can then, you know, becomes a rea- an object and a trigger for worry or doubt or fear. So with the elimination or the calming of chitta, objects don't get generated in the mind consciousness. First of all, really nasty ones, and then maybe unnecessary ones, and then maybe, you know, you're going to get like, it's kind of nice just to be empty, all that. So that's that's the process, and for sure you can't, you know, you can't sort of. It's not. It's not a. This is not a, a indoctrination. There's no way that uh, you could talk yourself out of generating objects. You only you only get generated because this, you know, um, the the passions the agitation, the uncertainties, the identity issues, the calm is still potent. So it's really through releasing that and you only release it as your chitta becomes, it gets more comfortable with less and more comfortable in its own presence. And as, as we begin to experience, which an average person would not believe, is that there's a quality of presence which is not an object, you know, which is not a thought or a feeling or emotion, but it, and it's actually, as you touch into that, it feels really good. It feels like, yeah, why bother <laughs> doing all the stuff? You know, this is, this is, this is satisfying. <laughs> the rest of it just keeps whirling around and doesn't go for it, you know. So that's so so the. Then, then it doesn't keep putting these things out into mind consciousness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, we'll say, well, you can't spend the rest of your life without thinking. But we're not talking about the rest of your life, we're talking about maybe five minutes. <laughs> so that, that, you know, the, the, when it's necessary, then, okay, there's, there is the need for volition, there is a need for intentionality, there is a need for atten- attention, then the system can, okay, but it's no longer a compulsion or something that can't be, can't be mediated over. One doesn't become oppressed with it, becomes something that can be done from such skillful things as, you know, compassion or generosity or, you know, so then the consciousness channel is still there for the lifetime, open, and it can be empty, not dependent upon, finding no footing, or it can be um, available. But its footing is very much dependent, not fixed. You know... 
this is not easy. What to do when the mind keeps obsessing over something? It then seems like all the hindrances arise simultaneously in sympathy with each other. This feels like a very persistent condition and an obstacle to peace or insight. How to relinquish obstructive thinking? Mm. Well, uh, yeah. Keep practicing. Um, it's uh, something like this: obsessive thinking. Thinking is is just a function. You know, it uh, can gets a bit of a can get a bit of a pain when it becomes compulsive. You can't, and, it, and it's also kind of just not just negative critical thinking but remember it's not thinking itself it's it's innately the problem it's the emotion um, of that's there Um, so it's it's really the uh, you know the emotional quality that's there so when was obsessive there's either obsessive anxiety or obsessive passion greed lust Obsessive aversion, grudges, obsessive, yeah, these kind of qualities. So it's really, the thought just acts as the, as the thing that gives, you, gives the mind specific topics to, to get its obsessive greed or aversion or anxiety going on, right? I mean, you know. So, you know, you want to deal with the emotion or, or the emotive habit, uh, and then, rather than the thought, that must be one's aim. You need to you need to name the 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 underlying emotion. Could be just just needing to be busy. You know, the mind is rattling away, um, craving for something to think about. Could be that kind of craving. It's up to you. I don't know, but these are these are very common. Topics doubt, just can't shake the doubt because there's an emotional quality there. And to uh, reveal the emotional quality, um, you know, you, you say, well, step off the thought, what's this doing, where's this coming from? What probably won't take you that long to get the name for that. How's that emotion feel? What's it, where's it? If we begin to recognize that the mind is really uh, uh, occurring through the entire body, and the organ of the mind is the body, 
the entire felt nervous system, if you like, the living body, the sentient body, the emotive body, then how is the body, how is that body being affected? Being heated, going rigid, getting spasming energies running, contracting, uh, getting lost, blurring, spinning, and we try to say, come to the stable body, come to your feet, come to your spine, come to your breath, come to the f- structure of the body, the simple, scent that there are various uh, bodily fields. And the coarse field is just the sen- sen- sensate body, which means skeleton, sense of touch, physicality, you know, the sensate body. That's the first coarse field, or gross field. The second, subtler field is the energy body, which is the sense of vibrancy, restriction, tension, uh, cold, heat. Is it in that? And through these, you know, and certainly with breathing crosses those. So your breathing is both sensate and also energetic. Right? It's both the squeezing of the abdomen and the inflation of the chest, and it's also this energy flow. So, so in a way, if if we can, you know, find that breathing quality to be a resource, then that breathing quality, if you keep returning to it, will tend to breathe out or clean out these obstructive emotions. But you may need, of course, to to amplify that breathing quality with qualities of kindness or goodwill or patience or forbearance or reassurance uh, so there's something for the emotional mind to feel steadied by yeah because when it's obsessive it's finding some kind of stability in its obsession and it needs stability so we find if stability can be offered through something that's more positive yeah and isn't of that nature, then we come to this, you know, then it can drop. So, you know, the Buddha said when one has obsessive thoughts, cultivate mindfulness breathing is the antidote for obsessive thoughts. But um, actually for modern meditators, mostly obsessive thoughts is an antidote for mindfulness of breathing. We think a lot harder these days. <laughs> so, okay, well, let's re- get back. To, uh, how about <laughs> standing up and walking up and down, <laughs> feeling the body, you know, to get into something grounded, you know. And some, so the simple signs, what, what mindfulness of breathing, you know, if it's fully there, would offer, would be a sense of something that's steady, continuing, rhythmic, because the mind naturally tunes the rhythm. You know, we like rhythm, dum, 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 dum. That's reassuring. So, okay, about walking, dum, 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 dum. Even a mantra, dum, dum, dum. Worry beads, you know, to hold the beads, dum, 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 dum. Touching, dum, dum, dum. You can use your fingers even, dum, dum. Something that keeps interrupting this jangle of thoughts with a distinct touch. The touch is a nice sense base. It doesn't. It's 
direct, bodies have them. It's a powerful sense or sense base, so we could try to use a sense of a sensate body, the touch sense, walking, standing. Um, we can also use the, the energy body, so if we're standing, experiencing balance and trying to focus on that. Um, if it, and if, because it can be, um, you know, the problem with this is if it's, if it's too easy, the mind sort of does it with one hand and doodles with the other hand. So generally it's the sense is, can you make it something that's a little more fully conscious so you perhaps slow it down or, um, you know, or do headstands. Much e- more, more takes more to do it, stand on your head than on your feet. But you can do that, for example. Not, probably not in the meditation hall. Um, so, you know, find something sensate to, to bear, to hold on to uh, and uh, slow it down. Um, Back it up with certain uh, suitable emotional resonances that contradict that pattern, or at least provide assurance. This is just fear, this is fear, this is fear, this is okay. Everybody gets frightened, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, here we are. You know, something that isn't just criticizing, but it's sympathetic. Um, That also helps. Recognizing, you know, with some wisdom that the topic of one's obsessive thought is purely made up. Mm-hmm. But he did that. I did make it up. He did say that terrible thing. He did say that to me. I'm not making it up. I gave him right to feel annoyed. I'm not making it up. <laughs> Where is he then? <laughs> Well, it was, it was last week. You know, where is he? Where is this person who's bothering you? Where did he get? Is he in here? Somewhere? <laughs> You're making him up. That's all. <laughs> Your memory's creating him. Yeah. And what it's done, it's got one particular piece of behavior that's really... And you keep bouncing off that. You, know, you focus on one particular thing that's annoying. That's attention. <coughs> Memories do, doing that. Yeah. That luscious thing. What makes it that way? Yeah. Things are beautiful because you don't have them. The beautiful things you have, you don't notice anymore. Yeah. It's always that. So obsession over something one would, one would have. You start to just check it out. How true is that? Mm. So you can review the objects of one's obsessions with some discernment, some reasoning. Uh, you can uh, uh, allay or work with the uh, emotional or jitter effect there by by and you can use uh, mindfulness of, of body mm. um, that's that's what you do <coughs> so 
When worrying, caught in negative thinking, is it advisable or helpful to read dumber books as a way of counteracting? More helpful, unhelpful, Vajji Sankara, that's, that's verbal forms with more helpful verbal form. Yeah? Yes, indeed. Whatever gets you through the night. <laughs> Talking to somebody and so forth. Remedy for rehearsing, anticipating the encounter, the mind jumps into crafting the optional opening line or two. Isn't it nice when you read this question, you think, oh, it's not just me. (laughs) (laughs) Remedy for rehearsing everything. Uh, Crafting the optimal opening opening line or two, rather than trusting authentic encounter. Pause. Mm. This is becoming. This is the quality becoming. It seems a fairly innocuous little topic, rehearsing things, but it's really this 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 very substantial outflow of becoming, seeking to form. So we seek to form a future before it's happened. Uh, even you know two minutes time with something seeking to form to make sure we get it right before it happens. Yeah. Preparing your speech before it happens. Mm. Preparing your opening line before you meet the person. What you're going to say. You know, that's, that's becoming. So it's not, not a small thing. But uh, it's also, uh, uh, you know, um, you, don't, you never do it. It never happens. The thing about becoming is it never works. You never become what you think you'll be. You've got this crafted opening. What I'll say to that person when they walk through the door, and they don't walk through the door. You had it all ready. Oh, it didn't turn up. What I'm going to say when I get on on stage is this, then you get on stage and you forgot your lines. (laughs) Or, you know... Or something else, or you know, the very because you can't predict the, the the you can't predict reality because it, it is because it's real, it's present. It's not a fantasy of one's mind. It's not an object of one's mind. Your mind can concoct these incredibly detailed scenarios of what to do if and that and that, but it can't concoct reality. You can only concoct concoctions. So when the real thing is there, actually your rehearsed bit is actually out of sync with the reality. And the more you kind of assess that, and the more you begin to sense this constant rehearsing is stressful and doesn't quite work anyway, and is causing me a huge amount of energy loss and agitation, why don't I just do this mad thing called trusting myself (laughs) and just let it happen? Why don't I just generate stability, mindfulness, goodwill, and walk walk around with that and see what happens? So those those 
can help. How can I have compassion for Donald Trump and those who voted for him, which is a little easier? Mm-hmm. Who's this Donald Trump character? <laughs> uh, qualities of uh, compassion. Generally, compassion is when goodwill meets that which is in pain. I don't know if this man is in particular pain at the moment. He's probably feeling quite happy. So, um, you know, compassion is a direct experience. Is when the, the the heart meets that which is painful, and instead of resisting it, or that which is depleted, instead of despising it, it moves to embrace it. it says, "I want to be with that." Uh, low, feeble, painful, you know, reaches out to that. Mm. That's that's the gesture of compassion. Mm. Because it keeps the heart whole. You know, the heart is an embracing organ, an embracing system. It needs the you know, it's only it's only whole when it can embrace things, right? When it can include things, it's an inclusive, relational experience. So it, so naturally, when there's that which we're fond of, or feel affection and, and, and admiration for, we want to really open to that, and and be with that. Hmm? Heart loves to do that. So, but then when it's things are painful, then this, well, I don't want to be with that. So, is it, but then the heart is no longer whole. It's, it's, we know something, we're aware of something, and we don't want to include it. We want to turn away, we want to switch it off, we want to get out of here, we don't want to, you're rotten, it's not right, you know, it does that kind of thing. And then you, then the heart doesn't feel whole, it feels constricted. So inclination of the heart is to include that which is uh, uh, suffering or uh, miserable, pathetic, um, not generating um, admiration. So, and this, this so the, the the this chant is a rendition rather than. Very accurate translation. So when it says to others as to myself, that's just one kind of more or less natural form, but it doesn't really say that. It just says in all directions, everywhere. So it's a holistic quality. And as a practice, basically, you know, you set up the practice of, of this openness, this goodwill, and then you start maybe with that which supports the quality of, of metta, of um, feeding, nourishing, that which you love to offer yourself to. And if that's a nice way to start, you get used to that experience of offering yourself, offering your heart to. It's a generous quality. And then, okay, you open the field. And then what particular phenomena, you know, 
are generate that or do I can can would be recipient to to that generosity to that quality of giving heart you start with those who are easy and then you begin to work towards things that are not so easy saying you know still I will not shut I will not let ill will take over my heart the stinginess the the prickliness the bitterness Mm. So when that good intention meets that which is painful, again, it's, it's as though, even though you're sick, I want to be with you. Even though you're uh, in a bad mood, I want to be with you. I want to offer to support that. That's, that's compassion. Mm. What your responses are to what this person represents to you, um, yeah, you know, I think you probably need to have compassion for yourself if you're experiencing pain. Mm. <coughs> and that may have good results, strengthen you and uh, make you fearless. What do you recommend? What do you recommend when or if the heart feels closed, absent, or dry? Meeting levels of fear. <coughs> well, this in line with what's just been suggested. You know, we uh, how to. Uh, uh, make the heart open, or encourage the heart to open. Open heart is 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 rich, is flowing, is dynamic. It's it's there. It's present. Uh, it's offering, um, and um, so when the heart feels closed, there are several possibilities. And by and large, most remedies are either to uh, substitute, that's one, so it's called the tatanga, which means you take out one set of objects and put something else in. Another one is, is just um, um, reviewing uh, and uh, um, relating to the state, state in itself. If we first process uh, means you, you you generate or you bring to mind an object your heart will open to. Could be a dog, could be um, trees. It could be something where you get a sense of, oh yes, oh yes. So you deliberately generate objects, mental objects, phenomena <coughs> that you can do that with. The very act of dana, of generosity, <coughs> is always considered to be a, <coughs> a sound um, channel that causes the heart to open. Those who you feel naturally, or you, you incline towards giving, which could be material support or service, or giving advice, or giving presents, so that the givingness is also a, a very lovely way of offering heart. And if it's just giving a listening ear, it's still that we open to another suffering, that's a good way of getting the heart to open. Mm. We give something. 
Now in terms of actually you know, relating to the phenomenon itself, how does it feel? How does the closed heart feel? If it feels feared, fear is the word that comes up. Okay, what does fear need? What does the heart need? So one begins to be more heartful towards one's loss of heart. It's all heart is always there. And we all ha- we all have that. So when we recognise how barren, how tight, how constricted, how shut down we are, yeah, can it is it possible to just name it? How does it feel to feel like that? And rather than going to the, well, there's nothing I can do about it, I'm just, there's something wrong with it. No, 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 no. How does it feel to feel like that? I know it's painful, uncomfortable. Can, and how does it, what is it, could you be with that? What would it take just to be with that quality? Feeling miserable, constricted, stuck. Oh, hmm. It may not be that easy. But you see what I mean. Imagine it's somebody else. How would you feel if it was somebody else like that? Mm. So, so a couple of ways. Uh, Anything that causes heart energy to run through. So if we find ourselves loving, bird or a tree or then you know bringing that up something that gets that emotional juice flowing mm. So the response essentially must be in these emotional effects. You know, the response, as a simple reminder, response is not to fix it, to sympathise with it. Instead, not to reject it, but to open to it. Not to blame yourself for having it, but to love yourself like a nurse, to be your own good friend, in it, not away from it. Because of it, it should stimulate that sense of, you know, this being is suffering. Uh, So just remember, we're not relating to experience to change it, to fix it, to analyze it, to why, to why should I, what's wrong, well, how am I? We're not, don't go down that track, just you want to relate to it, sympathize with it. And that, that, of course, you know, if one were doing that, one wouldn't be stuck. So it is a learning curve, a learning thing. But um, that's, that's the direction to, to move towards. If it becomes really difficult, then you need a good friend. Someone who will offer that for you. And 
Okay, let's pause for tonight on the on the questions. Thank you. <laughs>